man, yeah, we could just wrap up. Are y'all ready? I mean, I got some stuff here, but man, if you have a copy of God's word, let's continue in this theme because we're going to be looking this morning at the loving God who loves us. And so I, if you have a copy of his word, and if not, there are free ones right outside the door there, I would love for you to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. As this morning, we are going to continue to dive into this theme we've been building all morning about a loving and good God who loves us. And we're going to dive into the depths of this letter from Paul to the church in the region of Ephesus. And so Paul has spent, he basically in this letter is going to spend the first half of the letter writing on some very rich doctrinal issues. So the first three chapters or so, uh, didn't have chapters at the time, but the first half of the letter was written to the church just pouring truth on top of truth. Man, I mean, he is just flooding them with doctrine, flooding them with truth, flooding with them with the understanding of who Jesus is, revealing to the church who they are in Christ. What God the good father has done for them. How through Jesus they are the sons and daughters of the most high God. And then he's going to spend the second half giving them some very practical, what does this mean for us? And so last week we got a glimpse into the heart of Paul in prayer for the body of Christ. So we were flowing out of this doctrine and then we get a peek into the way Paul would pray for the church. And so Paul spent the first half of his letter you know, writing this, and then we, then we look at his prayer for the body of Christ. And we looked how last week Paul expressed the gratitude that he had to God for what he had heard about the saints at Ephesus. So having some time between when he wrote the letter and, and, and his, 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 his experience with Ephesus, the church there, he did probably, we talked about he probably didn't know everybody there, but he prayed and thanked God for two things. He said, I thank you, first of all, because I thank God for you because I've heard about your faith. That you have a very strong faith in God. And he thanks them for that. That they have a healthy vertical relationship with God. But then he says, but I've also heard about your love for the saints. That as the church, you love each other well. So you have a good horizontal relationship with each other. And he, he went on to pray and say, pray that God would allow them to experience wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Man, may you learn more knowledge about this great and loving God. He said, I pray that you will experience illumination of your hearts, that through the Spirit you will have your hearts illuminated, that the eyes of your heart can see the truth like it never has before, that they would experience the hope and power that is theirs in the resurrection of Jesus, and that they would have harmony and peace as the body of Christ. He prayed for the body. Christ is the head. He prayed for the body of Christ. And now Paul is going to shift to an absolutely foundational truth. An absolutely foundational truth that you and I this morning must not miss, okay? Very serious this morning. I believe if we miss this truth, we miss the essence of the gospel. To miss this truth. You know, in order to realize, in order, in order to realize the necessity of rescue, we must first recognize the severity of the situation, in order to realize the necessity of the rescue, you and I must come to a place where we recognize the severity of the situation. There has been only one occurrence in my life that I literally felt that my life was in jeopardy. One time. You know, when I was in college, I worked on the coast 
for a couple of summers, just making money in the summers and serving there. And I worked as a lifeguard, which with my ginger hair and pasty skin, I know you had already assumed that. Uh, and so um, it comes to no surprise to you. But one of the things that, that we had the opportunity to do in our free time was to spend time out on the water. I mean, lifeguarding on the Mississippi coast is a little bit different because the water's only like two feet tall. So lifeguarding is just like, stand up, you're, you're fine. You know, you just don't, we don't have this big, big issue here. And so, so one of the things we really got to do that I loved was that we got to take, they had these little one-man sailboats and they were, they were just, they could just glide on the water. Man, I loved it. It was so cool to get to go out there by yourself and just be able to maneuver the boat and, and experience the, um, uh, the water. And it was one of the most amazing times of day that at the end of work, uh, late in the afternoon, we could take these little boats out on the water and just spend time out there. Feel the wind blowing and in your face and, and then and if, to your back as it filled up the sails. And to go out in the middle of the water and just in full recognition that in the middle of the water, I could truly recognize the beauty of God. And I could truly see his creation. And I could feel my smallness compared to the vastness of this water that was around me and just in this little tiny boat. Well, this day was a little bit different in that there was an amazing squall coming up from the south and it had created this unusually swift wind. I mean, that really made the boat fly across the top of the water. Now, for Mississippi, this doesn't happen much, but to be able to be on the boat to where you're like literally having to hang off the, the backside to kind of keep the weight down, it was incredible. And so we headed out and being 19 years old and invincible, the thought of a life vest was not in my mind. Uh, you know, I could swim, nor was someone on the shore to man the rescue boat that was always kept there for overturned boats. That never crossed my mind either because I just saw an incredible situation with the wind and the waves coming together. So there we went. And I was, I was, what I was unaware of was that there was not only an unusually high gust of wind, but the undercurrent beneath us was also incredibly swift. And so you had this crazy mixture of perfect wind, perfect water, uh, or imperfect in our cases, it turned out to be. And it wasn't long on the water that on my first turn to, to start heading back towards the bank, the boat just completely flips over. I mean, it's, 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 it's done. I'm not getting it back up. I'm trying to do all the stuff I knew to do to, you know, no life vests. I'm having to tread water uh, to keep this, to keep myself up and then trying to flip a boat back over and we're pulling the sail up through the current and then into the wind and, and the weight of that blowing against the boat was just impossible. We could not, there's no way it was a losing situation. And so there were some people on the beach and, you know, we're giving them the I'm dying wave and they're giving us the, you got it. Way to go. You know, you, you can do it. And they're giving us the thumbs up and lay back. They're thinking, oh, they're wave. They're in good. They're above water. And, and you know, we're out just frantically going nuts because we're a good ways out, uh, close enough to still see the shore. But by this point, I had gotten so fatigued that I've never been scared like this. I'm usually pretty comfortable in the water, but I've never been scared like this because out in water, you know, very much over our head and completely fatigued to where I couldn't, uh, my hands were losing grip. And so I thought at one point, I said, you know what, I'll just climb up on top of the boat and I can just sit there and I'll be, I'll be good. And so I go to pull and my hands do not even have strength to, to pull my body up on top of the boat anymore. And so I literally have to just like, there was a little slip in the bottom of the boat where I, and I just had to stick my hands in there and just hang. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm done. This is it. I've got to hold on here and just you know, hopefully I'll blow up to the, sea, uh, to the shore somewhere. But then 
in that helpless situation, I mean helpless, unable to do anything else, I've done everything, I have completely surrendered myself to the elements. There is nothing else I can do. They have won completely hopeless until, until in my state of desperation, I hear the sound of a boat motor. Now, by this point, someone had made it to the beach with the keys to the boat and had realized there was something going on out there and were coming to our rescue. I have never in my life been so happy to be in a boat and never in my life been so happy to have my feet back on dry land. The rescue for me was so overwhelming because of the full recognition of the state that I found myself in. Helpless, defeated, unable to do anything. And then out of a a rescue, I'm able to be pulled from that. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see a very bleak situation for each of us. We're going to get some really, really bad news. Very dark news, but yet very purposeful news. Because if we don't recognize the severity of the bad news will never embrace the brightness of the good news that will be to follow. I've said this before to you, that for, for good news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces. And we're going to see that very clearly this morning. And it's the absolute best news that I could possibly ever give you. So let's read together. As Paul continues this letter, let's remember he's just been praying for the church. And let's hear the bad news of the situation that every one of us have found ourselves in. Whether we've recognized it or not, every one of us have found ourselves in this situation. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The bad news. The bad news is is that each and every one of us at some point in our life, maybe some of you here in this room are here in this place, we were spiritually dead. Now, I want that to to resonate with you for just a moment. We were spiritually dead. Now, if you're anything like me, it is much more pleasing to skip past all of the talk on death just to get to the good news. And this is a natural tendency. And to be quite honest, a tendency that for a good portion of my life kept me from seeing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because to be quite honest, salvation was not something for me that I was overly stressed about because I was a pretty good guy. You know, I didn't go through any wild streaks. I, you know, I didn't uh, get into the, to the party scene. I, I didn't cuss at a level that could be audibly heard by anybody else around me. Uh, you know, I, just a pretty good guy. I listened to Christian music, tried to avoid rated R movies unless it was like Saving Private Ryan that made it rated R. You know, just tried to do the things that were right. So I thought I was a pretty good dude. And so for me, the gospel was something that was always presented at beginning with the birth of Jesus. So when I learned the gospel, salvation for me began with Christ and it began with his birth and what he did and then how I was to respond to Christ's actions 
in order to have eternal life with him. That was kind of what I learned. And so I didn't know what I was being rescued from. I was taught that I had to be forgiven of sin, but I wasn't taught that I was spiritually dead. That I, my, my soul, my spirit because of sin was dead. Totally, I, we, it was a total disregard of the severity of the situa- situation that led us to need this incredible salvation. But instead, I viewed salvation as something that I was almost entitled to, that I was deserving of because of the good life that I had lived. But when the gospel really came to life for me, and, it, and when it became a relevant message for my condition was when I finally came to the understanding that I was dead in my sins and trespasses. Now, to really grasp the depths of the fall of man, we really have to journey back to Genesis 2 where we first are presented with the reality of death. The first time we ever see death enter the picture. And in, 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 this, in this scene, God has created everything perfectly he has created everything with such creativity and wonder. Everything is to, is, is to lead to worship for him. He's placed man in the middle of this perfection. And he's basically said to him, enjoy. I've created this for you. Everything resonated into praise and worship of the Father. Work was good and worshipful. I mean, just everything that took place there was supposed to lead to worship of God. So God tells Adam and Eve that they can go and do anything they want except eat from one tree. So you can do anything except eat from this one tree because if the eating of that tree will lead to death. And this is the first reference in reference to this tree, the first time we see any mention of death. And in chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve that the consequence of eating the tree was death. Well, we get to chapter 3 of Genesis. And we see the serpent enter the garden, and he's crafty. He knew what, how to say the right things. He knew how to be convincing of Adam and Eve to eat from the tree. And he tells Eve, you will not die. Come on. You're sharper than that. You are not going to die. God is just holding out on you. God doesn't want you to experience knowledge at the same level as him. He is just holding you back. So Eve is tempted And she eats the fruit and offers it to Adam. And in an instant, the reality of death enters into the realm of creation forever. Forever. Scriptures teach us that the consequences of sin, we read about it in several places. In Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. That our sin leads to death. James chapter 1, 14 and 15 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the reality of sin. We see it peppered through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Romans 5, 12 expresses that that we take on the nature of our father Adam. It says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death has spread to all men because we've all sinned. So all of us are spiritually dead. And so we see, we see death now grab onto life and we see it impact us on several fronts. We see a relational death that happens. Through sin, now Adam and Eve, and then every relationship going forward, relationships are forever impacted by sin. 
You know, God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden naked and unashamed. Now, we cannot even fathom the reality of what this must have been like. To be relationally pure, no anger, no brokenness, no issues with body image, no lust for another person, just impurity, just, just complete purity in sexuality. We can't fathom this. But they were perfectly and fully satisfied in God. And then sin enters. And the first thing they do is go to clothe themselves out of shame. In Genesis 3, 7, we see that, they, that when they ate the fruit, their eyes were open and they saw that they were both naked and they viewed each other for the first time through the lens of their sinfulness. So death has led to this relational death. It broke apart the purity of their relationship. And we also see that from that, we see death enter the physical realm. Now we, they, we experience physical death because of our sin. From this point forward, we, we see that for them, physical death and for us is a reality for us. And we see our physical bodies impacted from the fall of man and that we experience sickness and we experience disease and eventually a place where our bodies give out and we experience a real death. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face the judgment. There is a reality coming from our sin that one day each of us will die. Unless Jesus returns, 100% of you will experience death. Now, now, not only physical death, but a spiritual death. A spiritual death, maybe most horrifying of all, is now that death separated Adam and Eve from God. Where they used to walk with him in the cool of the day, they now hid from his presence. And in this, we see the first spiritual break between God and man because of sin. The reality for sinful man is that our sin leads to death apart from God. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 could not paint a more bleak picture of our condition apart from God. We are not morally good. We are not righteous. We are not capable of bringing ourselves back to God. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough. We are spiritually dead. So in our text, we see that we do not need resuscitation. We need a resurrection to happen in our lives. Do you see this? In our sinful state, we did not need resuscitating. We were dead. Dead people don't need resuscitating. The only hope for dead people is resurrection. <clears throat> Let's keep going. So, so in our text, we see that what we, what we were dead in and that this death is one that characterizes the way in which we live as a result of our spiritual death. It says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. So these aren't two separate things. These are sins and trespasses. Trespasses are sins and we walked in them. This is more of like a, a defining of who we are. The imagery of, is, is of walking in sin and walking in our trespasses. That's kind of more of a, a statement of position. So, so for instance, let's say if I'm an insurance agent, I walk and do as an insurance agent does. If I'm a banker, I walk as a banker. If I'm a student, I walk as a student. It's kind of my nature. It determines what I do. And so when we look at this, this is not good people doing some bad things, but in our spiritual death, we walked as sinful people walk. That was the chronic state of, of our condition, was that we walk as sinful people walk. And so what does that look like positionally? Well, first of all, we see that we followed the course of the world. So in our sin and our walking, the spiritually dead person will naturally choose the ways of the world. It's the natural bent of the spiritually dead. As we're walking in our sins and trespasses, we will naturally choose the things of the world. 
The unsaved, apart from Christ, cannot prioritize life at least for a sustainable period of time after the ways of Christ because they naturally will choose the ways of the world. They will choose the priorities of culture. They will choose a desire for worldly things. It's just the natural position of the spiritually dead. We read about this in, uh, in Galatians uh, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia to be warned of the symptoms of walking in the flesh. And he says in chapter 5, verse 16, he tells them, look, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says this is what the desires of the flesh look like. The desires of the flesh are against the sin, or excuse me, against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. He says, I warn you, I'm warning you, these are the ways of the world. And so we so easily follow the course of the world. And secondly, we follow Satan. Anything that is that is, that is not for God is, is, is for Satan. There is a reality that we often don't recognize that we are in a spiritual battle in our nature. I mean, anything that is not for Christ that is in opposition to Jesus is in favor of the dark one. And this is a real battle. We often downplay the spiritual nature of the battle that we're in, but this is a real battle, a real war. And apart from Christ, we walk in sin and we are following Satan. And Paul describes this activity of Satan here in this passage that by saying that we follow the prince of the power of the air, we are giving in to the spirit that is, work at, <clears throat> that is at work among the sons of disobedience. It's a perfect illustration of how Satan works on unbelievers. It began in the garden and with each false step of any man or woman that are not in Christ, we see the power of the evil one working in the lives of unbelievers. And he goes on to say, Paul goes on to say that we also follow the sinful desires of the flesh. He uses such strong words in this passage as living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind and living as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul here is speaking the truth behind the doctrine of the total depravity of man by showing us that all aspects of our life have been impacted by the deadly disease of sin. Our outward actions are impacted. So we're, 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 just, we're, we're someone that, that, that we just, our, our outward actions are gonna be impacted and our inward thoughts are gonna be impacted. We're gonna act out of the sinful desires of our mind. And slowly, we find ourselves being lured apart from the Spirit into this, into this spiritual death mindset where we follow the ways of the world. John Piper says that I'm wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to try to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start, start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and I'm using my money and my possessions just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget that we're in a war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace and I sink into a secular mindset that looks, a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not to what God can do. This is following the passions of our flesh and it is a terrible sickness. And Paul says that in this state of spiritual death, 
He says our ultimate destiny is wrath. We are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So track with me here and see the effects of the fall. If the wages of sin is death and all of us have sinned, then apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead and the perfectly holy, just God will exercise his perfect justice by condemning sin with the punishment being death. Church, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a novel. This isn't a fictitious story. This is reality for us apart from Christ. This is just as real spiritually as you walking into a doctor's office to receive a diagnosis of death. The same from a spiritual standpoint. Our reality is that for us, apart from Christ, we are dead. And this is a bad place for us to be. This isn't God being irrational. This isn't God being kind of fickle and acting out in his anger. This is a perfectly holy and just God doing the things, the only thing he can do, and that is exercise justice. And the only penalty for sin is death. What a mess. What a mess we're in. And this characterizes it us all. Paul talks about how in another, another letter, another uh, book of the Bible, he writes, man, I don't want to do these things, but I do them. There's this war inside of me, and who can save me? I'm such a wretched man. So in the flesh, we serve sin, which leads to death. But now let's hear some good news. Let's hear some good news. Read back with me in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. <clears throat> if there are ever two words coupled together that carry such weight for us for eternity as these two, verse 4 begins with, but God. Not you, not me, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The good news is, and it's the best news, is that through Christ we are spiritually alive. A resurrection has occurred through Christ. He has brought you from a dead state and has resurrected your spiritual life into, to live again. Miraculous. So in our state of spiritual death because of our sin, the beauty of the gospel is that God breathed life back into our dead bodies. Let's, 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 let's feel that this morning. Salvation is not that we got things together, coughed up the bad stuff and started breathing again and then found our way back to God. No, the scriptures teach us that we were dead. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people lay there. They are dead. And spiritually, we were in a place where we needed God to intercede. And while we were in this state of death through our sin, God made us alive together with Christ. Why would God do this? Why would he do this for us? 
You know, God brought us a resurrected life from our sin through the resurrected life of his son, through his son's death. Why would he do that? He's such a just God, he could have just executed judgment on us. We messed up. We're sinful people. The wages of our sin is death, but yet he said, I love you so much that this is what I'm going to do. We see so much about the character of God that shows us the motivation for his actions towards us. He is a just God, and he would have been perfectly just to inflict his wrath on us, but instead God gives himself to absorb his own wrath. The wrath of God was fully poured out. Do you realize that? The wrath against your your sin and my sin was not excused. It was fully poured out. But it was poured out on Jesus. So why would he do this? We see the characteristics of Christ. He was rich in mercy. Our scripture this morning teaches us that. God was motivated to do this because he's merciful. You know, in other words, we sinned. And the punishment is death, but yet we don't die. Christ does. This is the most scandalous collision of mercy and justice that we could ever imagine. We see countless scriptures that point us to the merciful nature of the Father. 1 Peter uh, 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a free gift to us because God is gracious. Tim Keller talks about the nature of the mercy of Christ, and he says, Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. And the cost was the life of Christ. But God is rich in mercy. He's so merciful towards you. And we see a second thing. He's deeply in love with you. Out of his love, he did this. Does that hit with you this morning? The creator of the universe, the one who breathed into existence everything, Loves you. I mean, one of the motivating characteristics of the father was killing his son, and and killing his son was his deep love for you. I mean, I love you guys. I do, but I'm not letting my daughters get killed for you. But God did. He allowed for the murder of his own son because he loved us that much. That God, the perfect creator, he looked down from heaven and he looked into my life and he saw the condition of my state of rebellion and sin, my spiritual death. And while I was still a sinner, dead in my sin, he says that I want to redeem him and I'm going to do it through my son. I want to adopt him and I'm going to adopt him through the death of Jesus Christ, my son. I can't fathom that kind of love. He says, it will take the death of my son, but I'm willing to do that in order to redeem him and bring him back to life. Man, I, I, can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. I mean, how I wish this morning that the depths of the love of God toward you could sink in 
If I could do anything this morning, it would be to help you to see that the creator of the universe loves you. The creator of the universe loves you. God the Father loves you so much that he gave Jesus his son to be killed to redeem you. What love? And we read over in Romans speaks to this. It says, what do we say to these things? What do we do with this? And in Romans, he, he writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Who can bring anything before us that could separate us from that kind of love? Can tribulation do it? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Because it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. But no, this kind of love can't be separated. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It cannot happen. The love of the, God, of the Father is deep for you. Nothing can separate it. He said, I gave my son for you. You can't separate that kind of love anymore. And we also see finally that God is abundant in grace. Scriptures teach us by grace we have been saved through faith. So why is this? Because God rescues us by grace so that we might be the messengers and ambassadors of the grace in a world that is separated from him by sin. Death this morning may be your reality, but it doesn't have to be your destiny. It may be your reality this morning if you are apart from Christ, but it doesn't have to be your destiny. God has given himself and has graciously given us salvation through grace alone so that no man can boast. You can't do anything. Like you can leave here and try to do things better, but you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There, Jesus says there will be people that will come to the judgment at the end times and they will stand before him and give them their list of things that they have done. We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied. Man, we did all this stuff for you. And Jesus said, I'm going to look at them and I'm going to look and I'm going to say, but you didn't know me and I don't know you. I don't know you. So you, you have to press in to the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And there's a final thing that, what does this mean for us? How do we respond to this? And that is that you and I now are spiritually alive through Jesus. Paul ends by showing us in the very last verse that we are his workmanship. Look at verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Scripture teaches us that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are regenerated. You are a new creation. 
The, work, the, the word workmanship here would be, could be translated as a poem. So like a poet writes and pours himself into a poem as an artist takes a canvas and paints a beautiful picture. That's what Jesus did for us. He no longer looks at us and concludes our spiritual autopsy to reveal death. He looks at us and says that you're my work of art. I've created you to do the work that I have created in advance that you should walk in them. And he says, walk in them. He says, I've created you and redeemed you for a purpose. Walk in that. Do you see how that changes the posture? In the beginning, our posture was a position of walking as a sinner walks. We walked in the sins and trespasses. And now he says, you walk as the righteous redeemed because of my son. It changes your posture. It changes what characterizes you. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, these words. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the message and challenge is simple this morning. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Live as his ambassador. That's the message of the church that we need to present to people, of the spiritual death and the life that Christ brings. We have done a poor job in, of presenting the reality of the gospel. It was In my life, I experienced this same uh, presentation. We've done this poor job of presenting the reality of the gospel. And, and instead, as the church, we have attempted to conform people to some type of good choices, to some type of morality, to good behavior. But without Jesus, that is impossible because we are dead. It's impossible without Jesus. It took Jesus. You aren't justified by your behavior. Don't leave here and think, okay, I probably should live a better life. You can't do it apart from him. You're dead. And if you are alive in Christ, you can do it because you're alive in him. You're a new creation. All the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus. And that is the best news for us this morning. The creator of the universe dealt with sin by making the one who knew no sin, sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God this morning. You see that you were spiritually dead, but through Christ, you can be made alive. So good for us this morning. My prayer for you is just that, that all of us will see our condition. And if you have Christ and you are in Christ, you've been redeemed by him, rejoice that he now has given you life and brought you back from death. If you say, well, that spiritual death place characterizes me, today you can receive the good news of Jesus. So I want us to pray together and then we'll respond through our response time. If you